You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, on June 28th of 1880, Helen Adams Keller was born. She was born in a small town in Alabama and grew up for the first 19 months of her life like many other young children. But at 19 months of age, she was struck with an illness that would eventually leave her both deaf and blind. After this illness, her parents reported that she became utterly confused constantly distraught and prone to fits of anger, even violence towards her other siblings. She had no ability to communicate to the world around her, and she had very little ability to understand the world that she had been placed in. She was desperate. After several years of this behavior, her mother and father eventually threw the help of Alexander Graham Bell, contacted a woman named Anne Sullivan. Anne was a woman who had worked for some time at a school for the deaf and blind, and after being convinced by Helen Keller's parents, she uprooted her life in New York and moved to Alabama to tutor and mentor to live with and care for Helen. Early on in her teaching, she attempted to explain and to teach, to instruct Helen to learn letters and eventually words. She would take Helen's palm and she would draw letters in her palm. Helen Keller later in her life recalled that she thought that her teacher was simply playing some sort of game with her that she was drawing pictures, but the pictures had no meaning. The letters had no meaning. The words that she was spelling had no meaning. Until one day when Anne Sullivan took Helen Keller out back, she found an old water pump and she began to pump the water. And she took Helen Keller's hand and she placed it under the stream of water while spelling again and again in her hand, W-A-T-E-R. Helen Keller later in her autobiography recalled the experience. She said this, As the cool stream gushed over one hand, Anne spelled into the other, the word water, first slowly and then rapidly, again and again and again. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers, and suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that the W-A-T-E-R meant this wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul and gave it light, hope, joy. It set me free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could finally, in time, be swept away. She later tells a story that immediately afterwards she dropped to the ground and began to cling at the dirt on the ground, demanding to know its name. 
By the end of the day, she had learned 30 words. Her entire world was expanding before her. She was soon able to re-engage her family, to communicate to them her desires. And she was able to receive from them information, but also affirmation and words of love from them. See, words are far more than sounds that we utter, and they are far more than symbols upon a page. Words, they help us to make sense of the world around us. Words allow us to fully engage that world and to live in that world with others around us. We've spent the last three weeks leading up to Easter talking about a new kingdom that because of Jesus we already belong to and yet we are still anticipating. That new kingdom in Christ we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 makes us a new creation. And that new creation belongs to every aspect of our life including our words. But the question becomes, have we learned these words? Have we learned the words of this new kingdom? Have we learned the words that belong to us as new creations? A missionary friend of me once, uh, a friend of mine once recounted as he was living in this other country that he could communicate in that country, but it wasn't until the day that he became utterly immersed in the language that he finally felt like he belonged. Like he finally felt like he could enjoy and experience all that place had to offer. Until that point, he lived there, but he didn't belong there. Well, Mercy's Door, over the next ten weeks, we are going to be leaning in to the truth that in order to experience fully the kingdom that we now belong to, In order to encounter both Jesus and the world around us, we must learn to speak the words of his kingdom. And and not just words like doctrinal terms. Not just words to describe our salvation or our justification, our sanctification or our adoption. Not just words but words that capture our experience as children of God. Words that allow us to talk in the midst of any situation throughout our entire life as those that have been made a new creation. So ten weeks we're going to be walking through and asking the Lord to help us learn these words of life. These first two weeks we're going to spend looking at the words that surround us now in the world. Uh, If you will, the two songs that are constantly being sung in this world. The one, the sweeter song, the song that God Himself sings to us, the words that He speaks to us. And then next week, the siren song. The song of the world, the, the words of the world the words of our enemy that would attempt to dissuade us, to distract us from the words that God speaks over us. 
My goal here this church in the next 10 weeks is not just that we would learn more things. Not just that we would learn these words of life, but we would be immersed in them. That they would become our words. That quite honestly, we would forget the language that we spoke before, that we might come to know fully that these are the words that define us now in the world that we live in, in light of Jesus. So this morning, we fix our eyes on the beginning. And in the beginning, we hear that God speaks. And so let us together ask this question, what do we learn of the words of God? Four attributes of the words of God. The first is this, God's words came first. Verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. R.C. Sproul, a theologian that passed away recently, said that this was perhaps the most shocking verse that he read as he first read through the Bible. He said in the the verses of 1 and 2 and the words that are here, two great truths were clearly given to us. One, that there was a beginning. That for you and for me and for this world around us, there was a time when we were not. And the second truth, that there was one that was before that beginning. Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, O Lord, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The the doctrine of God's eternality is foundational to almost everything that we know about Him and the world that He has created around us. There is nothing that predates Him. There is no wisdom that came before Him. He created all things, and therefore, everything, including the words that we speak, come from Him. When my kids press in on something that I don't have a great explanation for, or that perhaps I just don't feel like I have enough time to explain, every once in a while when they say, Dad, why, I respond... Because I said so. Well, my goodness, if God doesn't have the ultimate because I said so. Why? Why are His words authoritative? Why is everything the way that it is? Quite literally, because He said so. His words came first. You know, even as I say that we're going to learn about the two songs that are constantly being sung in this world, the truth is that in the beginning was only one song. His song, His words, His voice. And the fact that His words came first means that God Himself sets the course for the nature of our words. What our words ought to be and how our words ought to be used. I've said a couple times from the pulpit before, uh, we like to be intentional in our family with the words that we use and, and the definitions that we give to them. 
one of the words that we've kind of tried to redeem within our household is the word appropriate. Right? Typically, kind of in our, our, our common vernacular, we use the word appropriate or inappropriate to mean the things that are kind of either good or, or kind of icky. Right? Inappropriate things are the things that we speak about in hushed tones or we don't speak about in polite company. Those things are inappropriate. But the word at its core foundation, appropriate and inappropriate, just means do they they make sense? Do they fit? Something that is appropriate means it fits. It makes sense in that context with this people in this conversation and something that's inappropriate means it doesn't fit. I tell my two-year-old, don't pick up sand and put it in your mouth and try and eat it. It doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. And the Lord God says the same things of us since He is the Creator of all things including you and I and our words. He determines the words that make sense for us. The words that fit. The words that belong in our mouths. But God speaking first also means something else. And this this brought me to my knees this week. God uses His words, the first words ever, in order to reveal Himself to us. His words mean we're not left to wonder who God is or what He desires or what He intends. Even though there are times where we don't understand what He's doing, we're not left to wonder whether or not He is doing good. God is not silent. In the beginning, God speaks and He tells us of Himself. God's words came first. But those words were not morally neutral. Those words are and were and will always be gracious, kind, and good. First, God's words came first. Second, God's words create. Look at verses 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. It's likely that that many of you guys, when you were in grade school or early on in life, were, were taught this little phrase. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words never hurt me. Doors can break your bones, but words will never hurt me. Listen, I distinctly remember adults in my life, including teachers, telling me they would never lie to me, but I can't think of a more bold-faced lie that they ever told, but when they said, words will never hurt you. Proverbs 18 in Scripture says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. And the comforting truth of all of Scripture is that God's words are not words of destruction. They're not words of harm, they're not words of hurt, and they are not words of death. Our God's words are creative words of life. He speaks, and out of nothing comes something. 
He speaks and out of chaos comes peace. He speaks and what comes is good. God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, who was called the Word of God. As He was living and ministering, as He had gathered disciples to Himself, there came a day told early in the Gospel of John when He told them that in order to follow Him, they must bear their own cross. In fact, they must do more than that. They must take His body and His blood and they must, they must eat and drink. They must take His death upon themselves. And we're told that soon after, the great crowd that had followed him quickly thinned out. And it was just the twelve disciples that were left. And Jesus turned to them and he asked them, he said this, do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God speaks again and again in creation. He speaks again and again in Genesis 1. He speaks again and again in Holy Scripture. And He speaks again and again to you and I. And again and again His words create. They always give new life. And what they create is always good. His words reflect His character. His words are an extension of Him. And since He is always good, what He speaks is always good. I want you to do this for me. Close your eyes, if you will. Take a moment. And I want you to think of the most life-giving words that you have ever heard spoken to you or over you. The most encouraging, life-giving words that a spouse or a friend, a parent, a teacher, or a mentor has ever spoken to you. Think of what those words meant. Think of the way that they have impacted your life. Think of the emotions that they caused. And hear this, church. Those words are simply a shadow a derivative, an impersonation, even in the best ways, of the words that our God has spoken over us again and again. The words of others that bring us life are words that point us back to His words. You can open your eyes if you haven't already. I want you to hear this when I say that God's words are always Good. That doesn't mean he doesn't speak hard words. It doesn't mean that sometimes his words aren't difficult or even painful. But what it does mean is that even the painful and hard words are bringing about life. That even the hard and difficult words that he speaks to us and for us, including the, the things that he speaks into our lives, even when they are hard, even when they are difficult, even when they are painful, they are good and bringing life. Scripture says that God disciplines those He loves so that we might grow into the fullness of the image of Christ Jesus. 
In John chapter 15, Jesus uses the picture of a vine and a vine dresser. And he tells us that the vine dresser, his heavenly father, will prune the vine so that it might bear much fruit. Pruning hurts. And if you didn't know the pruning, if you didn't know the vine dresser, you might think that the pruning is killing you when it's meant to actually bring you greater life. His words came first and his words are always good. Third, God's words define. Verse 5 says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Several years back, it probably has been 10 or 15 years, I, I, I saw a commercial. And in the commercial, it, it, it follows along with a, a young man on his first day in the German Coast Guard. If you didn't know there was a German Coast Guard, now you do. Share that with your friends. You'll, 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 be, you'll look brilliant. He, he comes on his first day, and in, in the German Coast Guard, he's assigned to this kind of command center, this operations center. And so this kind of uh, grizzled veteran slaps him on the back, leaves the center, and he, this, this, this new recruit is left all by himself in this operations center. And all of a sudden, this English voice comes over the radio and says, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking. And he, he hits the button and he says, this is the German Coast Guard. Terrible accent, I know. And you hear a voice again, mayday, mayday, we are sinking. I repeat, we are sinking. And the young man hits the intercom again and he says, what are you sinking about? We used to use this commercial, it's a real commercial, over and over again in training that I did when I worked for the Department of Homeland Security in order to emphasize something. The definition of words really matter. If you get words and their definition wrong, then the entire thing you're trying to communicate goes awry. In our culture, it feels like the definitions of words are constantly changing. What was once good is now bad. What was once bad is now good. What was once left is now right. But if God spoke first and if his words are authoritative, then he is the one who defines them. He gives definition. God called the light day, and so it was. And he called the darkness night, and so it was. He defines day and night. He defines good and evil. He defines joy and pleasure, hurt and pain. He defines life and death. He defines safe and unsafe, good and not good. He defines them. Not us, not our emotions. And not the world around us. In our family lately, we've been having an ongoing discussion about the boundaries that God gives to us. 
You've heard me read Psalm 16 before where the psalmist says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. If his words came first and his words are always good, that means his definitions are always good. He does not just take some things randomly and tell us that they are good and take others and tell us that they are not good. What he says for us not to do or touch or taste or engage in is by definition not good for us. And what he tells us to engage, to enjoy, to immerse ourselves in are at their core good for us. Maybe two ways to think of it is this. On one hand, you and I must determine to come under the loving good commands and boundaries that the Lord has given us because He has defined what is good. But church, hear this. On the other hand, you and I now have no need to bear the weight daily of trying to figure out what is life-giving, what will satisfy, and what is good because He has already determined for us what is good. He has defined for us. And finally, God's words give us our words. Skip down to verse 27 of Genesis 1. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, this beautiful poem of creation, it it follows a very familiar rhythm. God speaks, it appears, He names it, and it is declared good. It happens again and again and again until we get to verse 27. And in verse 27, a declaration of a new thing happens. God doesn't simply just create. He doesn't just speak. But this time, we're told He creates in His image. Man and woman are meant to be like Him. They're meant to reflect Him. And that includes the voices that He gives them. If you guys have been here for for much time, you know that C.S. Lewis is a favorite of mine. Uh, I probably read most of his fiction, if not all of his fiction, once a year, and my kids now are walking through the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this beautiful scene in the, the book The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in the order of the story, but it was the last to be written. And in this book, it captures the creation account of the world of Narnia. Aslan, the great lion, he sings creation into existence. He sings and the earth is formed. He sings and the sun 
rises. He sings and vegetation and plants sprout up. He sings and the creatures come forth. But at the end of his song, he bestows one final highest of honors onto some of his creation. He bestows the honor to be like him, to be in relationship with him, and that honor is the ability to speak. This is true for us, church. God gives us words so that we might be like him, that we might reflect his image, and that we might represent his image into the world. He speaks to us and he gives us words to speak to the world and back to him. His words are a gift to us. They allow us to live in his presence. We learn about him through his words. We learn about us through his And then we are able to speak back to him the words that he has given to us. And then he commissions us to go into all creation. In verse 28, he tells us to be representatives of his. To go and just like him, bring peace into what was once chaos. We're called to go to create order, peace, shalom, Our words are meant to be like His words. We speak because He has spoken first to us. So why do we need to know intimately the words of our God? Why does it matter that He spoke first? Why does it matter that His words create and bring life? Why does it matter that His words define and that His words have given us our words? You know, I remember when I was a young kid, and uh, my, my father was active duty in the Air Force, and so we moved all around, and almost all of our extended family lived in Michigan, but we were never, except for when I was first born, stationed within a couple hours of them. And so, during the summertime, we would take really, really long road trips to see them, right? And I didn't have a cell phone back then. I'd never heard of an iPad, and so children weep for us as we recount this story. Right? We didn't have DVD players in our van. What we had was a radio. Some of you don't know what that is. Right? But it was this amazing invention, which I think was invented hundreds of years even before, like a hundred years before I went on these road trips. But you could tune the radio to just the right frequency, and you could pick up a radio station. And then you would eventually kind of go out of the area covered and you'd have to search back through the radio and you'd have to find a new radio station. And and I was always kind of just flabbergasted at, at how in the world this all worked. And then I remember finding out one day that the antenna for the vehicle doesn't receive just one radio station. It is, as a matter of fact, receives hundreds of thousands of radio waves at every moment. But in order to get that one station playing just that one song, you have to tune it to just the right frequency. When 
Rachel and I planted this church, we went through an assessment. And in the assessment, they did a little exercise where they called this one church planter forward and they said, hey, tell us, what are the different voices in your head that you hear as you plant your church? And he said, well, I hear my own voice and expectations. I, I hear the, the voice of my, my wife. I hear the voice of my kids. I, I hear the voice of the church that sent us out. I, I hear the voice of those in our core group. I hear the voice of the community. I, I hear the voice of, of the enemy of my soul. And I hear the voice of God. And so the, the folks that were running the assessment, they invited like eight or nine people up and they assigned them each a role from that list. And they said, when I say go, I want you to speak to him. And I want you to ensure that your voice is heard. And he said, go. And they all started speaking and almost instantaneously you could hear nothing other than a roar of loud voices. And then the guy quieted him and he said, what did you hear? And he said, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell. And then he told every other voice to be silent and he asked the voice of the one playing the role of the Lord to speak and to speak clearly. And he said, what if you just heard his voice? Church, we are desperate to tune our ears and our hearts to the words of our God. It is necessary in this life where we are bombarded with other voices and words that will pull us every which way. That will constantly try and tell us what we must do, who we must be in order to be significant, valuable, secure, or okay. We must, in the midst of that, learn to tune our hearts to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father. His words must be the first one that we hear each day. His words must be the loudest in the midst of a thousand other voices. His words must be where we return in the midst of storms and struggles, sorrow and strife. And His must be the words spoken to us by others in our lives when we simply cannot hear them from Him. Church, His are the words of life. May we hear from them again and again and again. Pray with me, church. Oh, Father, You alone are good. You alone are worthy. You alone bring life. And Father, we need to hear from you again and again. We need to know that you are good. We need to know that you love us. We need to know, Father, that you are in control when everything else feels out of control. And so God, with one voice today, we ask that you would speak to us and that you might grant us the grace to hear you. Father, might your words be louder and more clear. Might we cling to them together as the words of life that they are. In Christ's name, amen.
Church, I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer. As, as we do so, I'm also going to ask that uh, Seth puts on the screen some, some takeaways that I want you to be able to walk through this week. This is going to be a little bit different for us during this sermon series. We want to ensure that you're taking what you are receiving and that we as one body can step into it. We'll send these out to you guys as well through our emails and it'll be up on our Facebook page. But the three things I want you to do this week is one, take time to consider where you tend to hear most clearly the voice of God. This will include scripture and prayer, but it should also include the people and the places and the times where your affections for the Lord are stirred where you most clearly hear the truth of the gospel and are able to believe it. You need to be experts at knowing when and where you hear the voice of God. Two, identify where in your life other voices have taken the place of His. What other voices tend to tell you where your true identity lies? What's actually good or not good? What actually brings real life? And third, take time this week and tune your heart to hear Him clearly. Ask yourself what it looks like for you to quiet the other voices in your life and to turn the volume of His words up. Church, let's go to our Heavenly Father and let's pray. Ask Him that those might be true. Ask Him that we might tune our heart to His. Let's go to Him. Let's pray, church.